Hi everyone, welcome to Type Talks. Today we have Dario Nardi. He's a well-known neuroscientist in the typology space and he scans people's brains. And so really, really great to have you. You are very famous within the realm of type. And so I'm wondering if you can let the viewers know a little bit about you for those who are new to you. Sure. Um... So I, I uh, got my certification in the use of the Myers-Briggs type indicator back uh, just as the World Wide Web was being born in 1994, and uh, which seems like an eternity unimaginable now, and started working soon after that with Dr. Linda Behrens, who has been in type since the early 70s and was a student of David Kiersey and knew Isabel Myers, and that's a whole generation there. So I feel really lucky that I had a good um, probably 10 or 15 years with the, the original sort of modern uh, proponents of type in a professional sense. And since then, um, you know, sort of learned like the, the way, good ways to interview people in terms of coming to understand how type manifests for them, uh, finding like a fairness and balance in the presentation of type. And then, of course, the neuroscience part, um, which someone suggested, Catherine Hirsch in Germany, uh, that maybe Dario would be a good candidate for doing that kind of research. And that was like in 2002. And somehow in 2006, I started doing a little bit of experimental stuff. And uh, the, the years roll by. And here we are. So I see people, um, they used to, it, it used to be two hours, but after a few years of that, we shaved it down to one. And now it's usually 40 minutes, uh, trying a whole bunch of different tasks to stimulate the brain in different ways. And then to look at which parts of the brain are most active. Um, and, and if people know neuroscience of personality, that's the way I reported it. But now I actually focus much more on brain wiring uh, the, the networks and the brain and how they work. And I think that's what you said we wanted to explore today. I'm really excited to chat with you about that today. And it's quite full circle because I'm a student of Linda Behrens and you work with Linda Behrens. And so it's fate that we're talking again today because yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're quite amazing. And so something really fascinating about your brain scans is that they show that extroverts are a little bit more front brain oriented. So they use more brain wiring or activity in the front area, whereas introverts use more of the back brain and they're more activated in their back brain. Could you go a little bit more into that for audience members? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the brain can be wired in many different ways and uh, the biases could be to the front of the brain, the back, the middle, the left, the right. Um, the front right and the back left together, like the whole bunch of things. It's also just as a whole, there can be different patterns that cross the brain. And researchers, not, not merely me, but, but really for uh, a couple of decades as they collect this brain imaging data have noticed that people who score high on extroversion using five factor model or uh, you know, any of the other more traditional measures. And of course, the few people who've done type work uh, that, that people are extroverted statistically are more likely to have more denser wiring, faster connections in the front of the brain. And conversely, for people who are more introverted. And in practice, what that comes down to 
from what I have read, because I'm not a neurologist in the sense of anatomy, I'm just using equipment to do the research from the outside. But I understand internally in the brain, there are two different pathways uh, that data tends to take. And so you think like something comes into your ears and you hear something and there's a pathway that goes directly to the front, to the executive regions of the brain and boom, 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 you know, you act upon it. Or that data goes at the same time, I don't want to say or, but and at the same time, it's also going to the back of the brain and it connects with memories, with the mental models that we have, uh, with feelings and emotions, and we process that and we uh, reflect and contemplate. And then eventually, once that process is, you know, starts to complete, it gets pushed to the front of the brain. So we all have both pathways but there usually is a bias and I see that bias uh, is not that every extrovert is equally extroverted. I think we all know that some suppose, you know, extroverts, some ENFPs are a lot more extroverted than some other ENFPs. Um, some INTPs are a lot more introverted than some other INTPs, but overall it's a pattern. And, and I think it's something that really, uh, you know, something that's so fundamental to type in one of the earliest things that Jung mentioned, it's like right there on the brain. Which is incredibly fascinating because extroverts are more likely to have denser wiring or activity in their front part of their brain. What is the front part of the brain responsible for? So the front part of the brain, and, and I really mean just like behind the forehead here, not, not even quite going to the, the indentation, you know, on each side, the temples, the, those are the executive regions of the brain. The parts that are involved uh, to use type language for perception and judgment. So the left prefrontal cortex is, it gets active when people make decisions uh, among options, when they are asked to, and they give an explanation for something when they need to focus to identify an error or to maintain concentration, that sounds like a bit like the judging functions. Then on the right prefrontal cortex, that region is involved. It gets active when uh, we do brainstorming. We track where we are in a process. We get negative information or really any kind of information. It has no filter. It just allows it to come in and we might reflect on it when we're seeking something in the environment, uh, that sounds a lot like some form of perception. So it's, it's almost as if the executive regions really are like a, a home base for the functions, as we think of them, the Jungian functions, and that extroverts are using them in a quick way. That is like the information comes in and goes directly to the executives. It's as if you're working in a big company and the information goes directly to the top tier and they just they act on it. That doesn't always mean they act on it smartly because maybe they didn't have time to reflect. So that's mostly what the very front of the brain is involved in. And then there are other regions right at the temples and right behind, which we can sort of think as like managers, and in teenagers, for example, the temple regions are actually better connected usually than the executives. And they're also good for things like short-term memory and the rapport building and using our imagination, mental planning, uh, abstract use of language, all of the stuff that is sort of managerial is high level of supporting the executive activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And so that's where the sayings of where extroverts generally act and then reflect comes from. Like there is some brain science to show that there is some correlation there too. However, there are some extroverts who are very much like that and other extroverts who are a little bit more in the middle area too. So there is a spectrum of extroversion. In, in yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's funny that word spectrum because behaviorally that will be the case. And there are these different patterns of networks when we look in the brain, like a fairly common one for ENFPs is they have this dense wiring in the front. And then they also have some stuff in the back, usually the back right, that's also quite dense. Um, the same for ESTP, two otherwise fairly different types. But what it really suggests is that on the one hand, we see, the, in other words, from the outside, the people with the ENFP or ESTP, see this outgoing quick person. But for them, in addition to that outgoing quick responses, they also have a part of their brain in the background, which is noticing things like body language, voice tone, uh, aesthetics, sort of monitoring the general flow of the environment. And so it's, you know, the, the, Every person, you know, is going to have like several different sides to themselves. And that's very natural. So that even though we might be tempted to think of it as it's like, oh, extroversion is a scale that's measured from like zero to 100. Really, it's that we have both an extroverted side and an introverted side. And we use both. The question is how much and when and how often. And, and for people who know type, especially the functions, this is not new information at all. This is right. But it's Sometimes people coming in new, it's sort of, oh, it's not just about behavior. It's really about the way we're wired to process information. I absolutely agree. 100%. Couldn't have been well stated by me. <laughs> we both have an introverted side of us and an extroverted mm. side of us. And it shows in our functions too. Everyone has a thinking and feeling function. And everyone has an intuitive and sensing function. Even Young himself said, if there's anyone who is a pure extrovert, they would be in an insane asylum. And so we have both qualities in us. And mm -hmm. you also mentioned how introverts will have a little bit more denser wiring at the back of their brain. So I'm wondering mm -hmm. what implications that has, what behavioral manifestations may that cause? Mm -hmm. So the back of the brain is, is a number of different regions. And one of them uh, is vision. So introverts tend to be more visual. That's simply the way it is. They're observing rather than immediately responding to something. Um, although uh, also thinking types tend to be somewhat more visual than feeling types. So there's always some like other, you know, factors that are coming in there. Um, that, that's like directly in the back and then a little bit coming around to the, not to the front, but, you know, from the back, sort of like if you think of the brain as like a car, it's, it's the, the back two doors. The, those regions actually go down a little bit and, and connect with the deeper parts of the brain involved with memory and emotion. And memory is both narrative memory, which is a little bit more on the right side of the brain, and then where it's accessed, and then factual memory. So for an introvert, information comes in like they're hearing something, and it goes to those parts of the brain that are, one, they're observing along with what they're hearing, then that information, factual information, narrative, which is both visual and auditory, and maybe kinesthetic too, that, that 
is being sort of collated in a way and compared and contrasted and, and contemplated with the memory centers in the brain. And memory just doesn't mean like introverted sensing. I'm talking about like any kind of memory, memory for concepts, memory for facts, like it just like, where is that accessed? You know, it's, it's there. The other neat thing that's towards the back of the brain is, in particular, I feel this is important as someone who is preferences for introversion and thinking, is that for me, thinking is not just an auditory, like logical deduction activity. In fact, for me personally, it's not really so much that. For me, thinking is a much more visual spatial activity. And this is also in the back of the brain. And any introvert really can have this capacity where they approach a situation and they experience it in their mind. So like when I hear an idea, somebody's telling me a new idea, I begin constructing the idea like as if I were building it from parts that they're giving me. And if those parts don't make anything that works in this 3D little like workshop in my head, I'm like, this doesn't work because I'm not just following words. I'm actually building something in my head. And this is very true for, you know, the like ISTP or uh, INFJ or ISFP. What they're building, what they're focusing on might be different, but they still have this like theater of the mind in a way or, or workshop. I want to say workshop of the mind to to workshop something, which is why I believe introverts really do their best work creatively by themselves. I, I don't mean totally independently because it's always good to get feedback and, you know, be part of, a, you know, a team. Um, but you really give them that space to work in their own like workshop of the mind and they can do amazing work with it. Beautiful. <laughs> you mentioned how the back of the brain is associated with memory. That's not just introverted sensing. And I think that's a really good point. The introverted functions all have a component of memory to them in a sense because you're retrieving something or you're accessing some sort of memory in your mind. One of the ways you can kind of explain this is there's both ROM and there's RAM. And these symbolize extroverted and introverted functions. One of those forms of memory, I think it's random access memory. What does the other one stand for, <laughs> ROM? Read only. Read only. Do you know which one is more like stores it and like keeps it and the other one is more like... So like, the read only is, is pretty much permanent and then the RAM is temporary. So the, if you turn off your computer, I mean, unless it's one of these like perpetual Mac errors, uh, it, it's when you turn off the computer, the RAM will empty out. Mm, yeah. With the random access memory, the RAM, it is similar to extroverted functions they tend to take in that information quickly or take in the sensation or whatever it is in the external world quickly and readily, but it doesn't tend to retain onto it. It's more temporary memory and then it just kind of goes away. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with ROM memory, it's more like introverted functions. Introverted functions take the thing and then they like keep it in this permanent place almost. And I don't know how else to explain it, but they're always building on something. Like with TI, you're taking these thought premises and you're building on these thought premises 10 million times and you need some sort of memory to maintain all of those premises. And all the introverted functions do that same kind of sensation or they do that same process. Mm -hmm. And so it's gonna have a memory like component to it 
because it's not going away. You're, you're keeping that framework or mm. whatever it is there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really cool how your brain science also shows a bit of that in its own way as well. I'm always in a state of awe and wonder at all the amazing stuff that you put out, Dario. You just keep putting out amazing content after amazing content in the type space. I, I want to say that that a, a bit of that is because I keep my antenna out, so to speak. Um, I mean, one is, a, yes, I've always had a, an interest in innovating stuff, and I feel very lucky to have had Linda Behrens as my mentor in type to always make sure that there's like a quality check on everything. Cause Linda's very big on quality. Um, even if it takes longer, you know, it's what do you compare against 20 years? If you're saying it's a few extra months. Um, but there actually are, are a lot of innovations and ideas in the type space over the past few years. And many of those are reminders of things that Jung brought up sort of tangentially or actually were quite meaty, but people in the type community were not really paying attention. And, you know, like his discussion of types in, in psychological types is one chapter in a book. Uh, and it's like, that's chapter 10. What about the first nine chapters? And then afterward. And, and so I would say it's from that. And some of it also is the technology just opens up things. So is as long as I'm keeping a hat on that says, you know, there's nature and there's nurture, then that leaves a lot of room to, to allow something new in. So I feel like a lot of it is about being open and, and uh, I tend to be curious and there's a downside to that, which I think we'll discuss with the subtypes. And that's, uh, yeah, it's uh, not always easy to have extra dopamine. Yeah. And so that definitely brings us to the subtypes. And so I will show that on the screen right now. And so Dario Nardi, he is now teaching people about the four subtypes within each type. And I think it's a really mind blowing discovery. This is the handout that he gave at the Association of Psychological Type International Winter Conference. And I thought I would put it on screen for everyone to kind of show Dario Nardi's newest things that he's put out. And here's the ESTJ example. I was wondering, Dario, if you could tell us a bit about these subtypes. Sure. So, um... The, it really started to come to me from several different directions at once. One is that as a few people I know in the type community uh, were aware of, as well as some clients said things like, you know, with today's technology and, and you know, machine learning and so on, can't we get to more than 16 types? Like, isn't there more than that? Um, fair enough question. Then there was the work of Vic, Dr. Viktor Galenko in the Ukraine, uh, who's in Kiev, as far as I know right now, last I heard. So that's uh, not, not a fun experience for him, wishing him and his family the best. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he comes from the socionics, sort of Russian, Eastern European tradition of type. And he had observed in his work as a psychologist that there were these patterns within type. Uh, and in fact, the terms that I used are, are, are use are the same terms that he uses, used with permission. Um, then there is the work of Dr. Helen Fisher, 
And she's, uh, she doesn't use type, um, but she comes from a background of looking at neurotransmitters, like actually measuring them in people, along with behavioral traits. And the four broad categories she comes up with are really strikingly similar to Victor Galenko's four subtypes. Um, so those were two things. Then there was a, a couple of, there was a little bit of work that comes from uh, social uh, psychology and, um, and uh, from a colleague in China and uh, who had also observed, why is it that he was somebody who basically, you know, had studied at an American university as an undergrad and he took the English version of the MBTI and scored as an ENFJ. And then he went back to China at some point and he took the, the Chinese, official Chinese version of the MBTI, which is adjusted for cultural factors. And he scored INTJ, which is his actual best fit type. And he found it remarkable that there was such a difference between cultures. And wouldn't that imply then that all of the types show up a little bit differently in, say, Chinese culture? And the same between what Victor observed in Russia and Ukraine and Eastern Europe and so on, um, how their descriptions of the types tend to be moderately different in sometimes compared to the Western version. So like the, the Myers-Briggs, David Kiersey version of ISFP is like a creative artist. You go to the Socionics version and the ISFP is much more, uh, I want to say like conservative and not as exciting. And Victor was like, I think it's just a matter of emphasis that the the West is emphasizing one version of ISFP, the creative version, and that the East was emphasizing this normalizing version of ISFP. And then as I got into my data, now that the data set has passed 500 people um, and looking at all of, you know, all, all the people of different types, yes, there are these statistical biases, like we talked about with extroversion, introversion, but still within the same type, like all ENFPs do not have the same brain wiring. But what you do find, what I found is that, yes, a lot of ENFPs tend to have something called a starburst pattern. And even if it's not strong, it's usually weak or it's like somewhere in there. And some other types like ENFJ almost never have this pattern or they have it a tiny bit. Um, and, and I began to notice that there was a relationship between people's cultural background and especially their career choice and their brain wiring. So we know in psychology, it's nature and it's nurture. It's not one or the other. And that's something that's sort of been missing from type. Like it's always been there implied. You know, there was the slogan, uh, for like 50 years in the type community. Every ENFP is like every other ENFP is like some other ENFPs is like no other ENFP. But the focus was always on the part of how, what they all have in common. But wouldn't it be nice if we're doing career counseling, if we're trying to help people get a best fit type, if we're working cross-culturally, uh, if somebody just had like some kind of unusual background, um, you know, it, it wouldn't it be nice to be able to have a language and a lens and some type descriptions that match or, or you know, help people find sort of the subtype that's the home base for them, that reflects their career, their culture, um, 
age. What else did I look at? Uh, education, sex. Uh, you know, all of these played a different, different degree of influence. I would say career was probably the biggest. Um, and, and yeah, we could go into more than four subtypes, but because the other people had focused on four, I'm like, and I have data for four, for all the types. I'm like, let's talk about four. And, and then it was a process of going through all of the data, the neuroscience data and writing descriptions based on the actual data. Mm. And that's what we have here in the slide deck is the fortifying commander ESTJ is exactly how it sounds. It's the one that's more dumb. It's the dominant subtype. It's more driven. It's more confident even than other ESTJs for good and for bad. They're, they're like the strongly extroverted, strongly judging, um, you know, not necessarily my way or the highway, they could be more mature. So this is not about maturity level per se, uh, but it is getting at a particular flavor of ESTJ. And I feel it's important because some types, especially I think among the IN types, which are the ones most commonly interested in type, there is a feeling, oh yeah, there's like several different kinds of INFPs or the INTJs or whatever. But then you get to like ENTJ or all ENTJs, you know, going, going to be Jeff Bezos. Like, is, is that fair? Aren't there other kinds of ENTJs? Um, the same with ISFJ. Why is it, and this just came up at a, at the, a, the, a conference, a type conference. ISFJ is a type that when they're going through the type sorting process are often sorting between ISFJ and INFJ, even though they have very different dominant functions. And so why is that? Well, most of the ISFJs I encountered coming into my lab were in the creative arts. I mean, they're ISFJ, but they're in the creative arts. So they're like, they have their version of intuition. They're the creative subtype of ISFJ. They're not the housewife sort of stereotype of, of ISFJ. Or, you know, the nice office worker, very da-da-da and whatever. I mean, the, even that like is, is like a simplified version of normalizing ISFJ. So I really wanted to communicate also this variety that's out there. And even for myself to understand, Linda Barron said over the years, she's like, Dario, don't use yourself as an example of INTJ. In the sense, not that I'm not INTJ, but, but there are other flavors of my type. And, and you know, to, to give room for all of those, how do we do that? So I, I've had good experiences so far using these descriptions to help people sort better, closer to their best fit type and so on. Yeah, it really gives space for the subtypes or flavors within a type so that they don't have to fit into the one version of that type. Because the different books, the different descriptions, whether it's from David Kiersey or Socionics, or another school of thought, there's truth to all of them, but they're all describing a very specific subtype of that type. So I, I think that embracing, like embracing looking at the different subtypes like this is, is a really good way of honoring the different viewpoints and almost synergistically adding them together. So it's like, instead of people fighting about my description of a type is better than your description of the type, it provides this room of you could all be right, but you're describing one part of the elephant. Like you're describing the trunk of the elephant and you're describing the tail of the elephant, but you're all describing the elephant. 
So I think it's a very all-encompassing, holistic, and expansive way to see type. And it allows room to see the nuances within type. And I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm wondering about, in the dominant subtype of the ESTJ, um, mm. it seems like they're more frontal lobe activated from the picture that you're showing here. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm wondering if you could describe what the dominant subtype wiring looks like typically. Mm. So it, all, all of the folks of a particular subtype, dominant, creative, normalizing or harmonizing, whichever one they're in, they're going, going to have a number of commonalities. Say like even INTJ and ESFJ, if they're both creative subtype, they're going to have some similarities. But then there are also going to be some differences. So I, when I describe the subtype for ESTJ, it will read differently for sure than the subtype, dominant subtype of ENTP. Um, and that's that's sort of the way it goes. Uh, the the subtype is, as you suggested, largely based upon the diagram that you see there. And I, I thought about creating composite diagrams and... Uh, I just decided to pick one from each type. Like what you see in the upper right-hand corner here is from one ESTJ's actual result. Like this is from an actual person. Um, The one that I felt was most representative of it. But I I did think of the other folks as well. Anyway, um, so what are some things that we see? Well, we see that there's still like uh, a little bit of clearly a bias towards the front of the brain. And there's not very much going on in the back, like around the, around the whole brain, there's sort of a bird's eye view. There's a ring of connections. So the person still has connections in the back, but they, they aren't strong enough really to show up. The, the, all the, the fun stuff is sort of in the front. So what do we see if I were to take this apart is one is that they have this quick executive function and that's in both perception and judgment. Uh, then they have these language-based reasoning skills uh, which are a little bit more towards the, the front of the brain. And they also have fairly good body awareness, uh, which is more towards the middle. Uh, they're the kind of kind of ESTJ that sort of like talks and works and decides and thinks and so on, all on the go. Um, they're very comfortable with that. And so the, what, what are some other regions that are towards the front where there's connections there? Well, there's things like uh, regions... Well, these are not really the names of the regions or the names of the sensors that measure the regions, but FC5 and FC6. So uh, quick efficiency. Um, then there's uh, awareness of group dynamics. <gasps> oh, what? There's an ESTJ who has awareness of group dynamics? You betcha. Uh, I mean, I've met somebody who I'm pretty sure, even though we didn't do brain imaging, was a great example of this, uh, a general in the army. Um and he absolutely had this awareness of group dynamics and was this walking, talking, deciding on the go with a lot of attention to people because he's in that fortifying commander role. Um, and then, of course, there's the usual stuff that's, that is, is connecting in some places in the back of the brain, the attention to visual and factual detail, social feedback. Um, and it, what I noticed with them... In some cases, I wonder, as I see certain connections, I'm like, how does this play out for this type? And what I notice with ESTJs is that they have a great way, an unnerving way at times of asking questions 
to really know like what is the person's character and what is going on with them and then to make an adjustment around that that ESTJ does have this this tactical sort of like I want to say a rude diplomacy and and it's it's like oh this is where you're coming from and uh and, and it usually is a little bit of a surprise to the person so when I tried to put language to this, I thought not just, I mean, I thought about the dominant and auxiliary functions, but I also thought about where does the whole pattern of the type show up? So extroverted intuiting, of course, is is uh, an important part of the ESTJ pattern, even though it's not in the four-letter code, it's there. Um, and it shows up in this quick integration of perception and patterns with decision-making. It shows up in asking questions or noticing little details and making inferences in those and then adjusting uh, how they're doing something. And another important piece, really important, that's almost like the make or break about any of the dominant folks is what I call a managerial connection. So a managerial line connects the, the two temple regions here. It's like they both activate simultaneously quite a bit. And they both have very complementary roles that they do. And what it really comes down to is the ability to both hold to, like a set of values, uh, principles, identity, which has been associated and researched with the, the right temple region here, with this contextual thinking, oh, in this situation, we're going to need this. In this other situation, we're going to need that. And that's been more associated with this left temple area. And the ma a good manager, good leader has to balance both of those. And, and that's like an essential piece. So it's not even just the bias towards the front. It's that managerial line that, that really allows them to balance absolutes and contextual stuff. Got it. That is really amazing. So I'm wondering, will an ESTP who has a dominant subtype look more stereotypically TE-like? because of the front bias to decisiveness and quick executive function and efficiency? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that's an example of where, you know, it, there's this like, why does this one type look like this other type? Is this person ESTP or ESTJ? Um, and, you know, and then there's another flavor of ESTP, which looks ESFP-like or ISTP-like. Um I, I don't want to assign particular subtypes to functions. Uh, but what I would say is that when the personality is, is present in a way, is working in a way that's more confident, then yes, the person is that ESTP is bringing in information and their bias is going to be on extroverted sensing, bringing in that concrete, tangible information and acting upon it and making quick adjustments and being impatient, uh, which is, you know, one of the downsides, um, even more so than other ESTPs. I mean, ESTPs can be quite patient. And I think that there's a role relationship for sure that I, I notice so often, and it really struck me that the, like the, the brain wiring pattern, the subtype, did seem to strongly associate with the size of the organization that the person works in and their location within the organization. So people who either are in an executive or managerial role 
or are working independently because they haven't had the opportunity or nor you know, working independently gives them the freedom to act independently. And when they're acting independently, they're very comfortable confronting other leaders and working with them. That is fascinating. <laughs> it really does add another flavor to type. What subtype are you, Dario? So uh, I have been doing brain imaging on myself uh, over the years, over 10 years or so. Uh, not every time, but most of the time I'm uh, the creative subtype, according to the brain wiring. And I, I don't think that's ever changed in practice. It's just sometimes the, the wiring, you know, it can flex a little bit. Um, and so the creative subtype, if, if the dominant is characterized by testosterone in a way, and, and that, that applies to both men and women, as Dr. Helen Fisher points out, that the, among women, some have more testosterone than others. Uh, or even if we just use that as a metaphor, uh, the, the, the creative subtype is much more about dopamine. And it's the next new thing. And there is always an interest in novelty, in travel, in asking questions, in discovery, um, in terms of organizational or group size, this person is often good in medium-sized groups. So that could be like one person among 20 uh, in terms of like a team of people. It could be a teacher and students, um, whatever it is. And the, ultimately, the person ends up coming across more social, more creative. Social doesn't mean, by the way, more sensitive or empathic. It's simply like, oh, new people, like this is a novelty. I'm going to encounter something, even if it tires me out, I'm going to do it. Uh, more movement. And they have more of this get things going energy, which is, I think, why people who have never met me, but see me on film, they're like, oh, well, Dario's an ENFP. I'm like, well, first of all, I've known about type for a very long time. And I made a choice to have adopt ENFP behaviors as part of my public image because people like ENFPs. Uh, and then that's been so long that that just became a part of me. I'm not that person that's like, I'm not overly sensitive. Uh, I'm not uh, shy. Uh, I'm not timid, uh, but I'm not very forceful either. What I really like is to go on adventures. And if we use the archetypes model, which we won't get into it, but there is a match between archetypes and, and these. Um, it's an adventuring style. And what was so cool is then I got into this and realized that, yes, you know, so this, this coordinator, inventor coordinator for ESTJ, like this, there are ESTJs who are dopamine driven. What does that look like? And I'm like, oh my God, my grandmother was this creative ESTJ. And it shows up in a different way, but it it's there. Um, it's the kind of ESTJ who likes to keep self-educating. It's the kind of ESTJ who can go uh, through a series of jobs. In fact, even holding down one job for a long time might be a challenge. Um, and in each place, they're like really great at getting stuff together and organizing things, getting things working and moving again in the organization, getting it more efficient. And then the novelty sort of wears off and they're ready to do the next thing. They're also the kind of ESTJ who has that quick wit. And they love like the entertaining person, the humor, 
Um, they would like to think of themselves as like, oh, in another life, I could have been an entertainer. And in some cases they are. I mean, my grandmother before she married was uh, an aspiring stage singer and she has a good voice. Um, so they're, and they do have these social skills. And again, it's not about empathy. It really is just like, what does it take to keep learning? And this is actually something I've heard from ESTJs, some of them, is this, like they realize the world keeps changing and they have this extroverted intuiting part of their, their pattern. It's like, oh, the world keeps changing. How do I keep up with that? How do I keep up my organization with that? And, and so they are the folks that do that. And they're like, oh, you know, I prefer the traditional styles. But, you know, this new style that's come out is really cool. Like, let me try that and see. Like for clothing or music or whatever it is. This is not the staid, conservative, quiet ESTJ. And, and I think we need to acknowledge, like, even as I was writing ESTJ, I was like, wow, there really is this variety. Yeah, I think this is a really good contribution to show the flavor of ESTJ because this this adds a lot of mind-blowing revelations for all the ESTJs who felt very extroverted intuition heavy. It's like, oh, the, I'm the creative subtype. That probably makes sense. And you even talk about the starburst pattern showing up in ENFPs a lot. And so mm -hmm. that could be why there's an ESTJ who relates a lot to certain ENFP things because they're the creative subtype and they have that starburst pattern in their brain too. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there, there is even this rebellious side at times uh, to this ESTJ. Um, what, one little story. Uh, so we have time to talk about the other ones. So my, my grandmother in the early 70s was very concerned about the proliferation of pornography uh, in public spaces. And she decided to get involved, as ESTJs do, and just educate herself on the issues and the law and what was possible. And if she wanted to change the law, what would she need to do? And it didn't take her very long, actually, to organize a group of nuns uh, to drive around the city before dawn and where these... There, there was a time, by the way, when you, you could have this material that was plainly pornographic just right on the street in newsstands, not covered with a paper or anything like that. And they would literally rip them out of the street. So imagine her and like several nuns just like taking these and ripping them out of the street and putting them in their van. And she did have somebody in city council quietly working behind the scenes to help make some of this possible. Um, it is like a, you know, an act of rebellion. And so this idea that ESTJs are always conventional or always following the rules or something like that, her idea of what the rules were, were cultural and civilizational rules, not just, oh, the law or, you know, just keep things the way they are. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And that story really illustrates it well. And so that brings us to the normalizing subtype of ESTJs. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to go over that with you. Sure. sure. So, so this version here, um, you can sort of see in the upper right-hand corner there that the the pattern is something that's more like a quilt or from the air, like a square farm fields as you're flying over it. I think quilt is probably a decent example where every region is connected to every other immediate region in, in, in a way that is, it's, it's complete, but it also means that to go from A to Z, you literally need to walk from A to Z through every letter of the alphabet. 
Um, so this person is going to be more conventional, a little bit slower paced, quieter, more specialized, um, more strict, more focused on detail and duty, uh, almost ISTJ-like. Um, but let's not confuse them with ISTJs because still they're often going to be in a managerial role, but in a very large organization like the military. So if we think of somebody who is uh, like sergeant or master chief or something like that in the military, who's a solid leader, they also have to deal with all of the detail, the regimen, um, that the extroverted intuiting has to show up in other ways, like humor or in problem solving. So this is a, an area, it's not that this ESTJ lacks extroverted intuiting, it comes in the domain of problem solving in the everyday stuff that they face. Um, so th this person will look a little bit more um, planful and more around like standard operating procedures and social rules. And they are sort of the strict ESTJ um, and probably the one that's closest to the stereotype of this type. Uh, nonetheless, they, they also have their strengths and they carry quite a bit of responsibility and they're very aware of that. Uh, and the, the sort of lead hormone rather than being say testosterone for dominant or dopamine for creative is going to be serotonin. And serotonin is this hormone that is related a lot to, I mean, there's a whole list of things one can find on Wikipedia. Uh, what is the welfare of the group? So this is very much the David Kiersey temperament version of SJ. But there are normalizing versions. That's what the N in normalizing, ESTJN stands for. There are normalizing versions of every type. There are normalizing INTJs. Uh, they're the ones who are the, want to say like high level code monkeys in large tech companies. Um, they are the ones who uh, run the local game shop. They're the ones who are a specialized mechanic when you go to, you know, get your stuff repaired, your, your car repaired. So it's not like, oh, you go to the car repair and everybody working there is an ISTP. That's absurd. Um, it really is it's this level of, of specialization and convention. And, and I say specialization because when you're in a large group and you're concerned about contributing back to the group and what is my contribution going to be, and they're not particularly ambitious, then the way forward is to specialize. And that's what happens. And it's the kind of specialty that's not like, oh, I'm specialized as a, as, as a quick thinking creative designer. No, it's the kind of specialty where they really walk through A to Z on something. That is really cool. All right. So the normalizing subtype is more serotonin based. Yeah. The dominant subtype is more testosterone based. And the creative subtype is more dopamine-based, right? Yes, yes. And I, and I should say that I myself haven't looked at both brain wiring and hormone levels at the same time. I'm just taking Helen Fisher's work, which she has measured these things, personality with hormone levels, and then noticing how similar they are to Victor Galenko's and my own work and seeing such strong parallels. I'm like, this is probably the case. And if it isn't, they're good metaphors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so 
what is the hormone associated with the last subtype harmonizing? So harmonizing. Um, so Dr. Fisher mentions both um, estrogen and oxytocin. And, you know, I, I think the neat thing about oxytocin is that it, the hormone level will actually go up when someone touches you and or you touch somebody else that it's activated by touch. So this person is much more empathic and reflective than others of their type. So it could be that, you know, we think, oh, ESTJ. What if the ESTJ is a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, not just even a research psychologist or in a big company or, the, you know, institution? Um, who are they? You know, and, and what I found, first off, I found that this pattern is not very common among Americans, North Americans. Uh, haven't had that many Canadians, but I, I can say at least in the United States. And the first few times I saw this pattern, I thought some the, the equipment had malfunctioned. But as I began to test more people, and by the way, I didn't see this pattern at all among the first 65 people that were in neuroscience of personality who were all college students. There is an element of age that this is also the most common in people in their like 45 to 60, 65 range age-wise. Um, I noticed it was a lot more common among Europeans. It was also uncommon among uh, the, the Indian folks, that uh, people in India that a colleague of mine collected data for. So that really got me thinking that if we take a group of counselors, coaches, consultants from the United States and from Europe and uh, compare those, we see some interesting cultural differences as well. So this is a much more, it, it's like close, it's touch-based work rather than leadership that's like out front and testosterone-based and about territory is much more about connection. Um, th this kind of ESTJ is more thoughtful. They're more sophisticated. The actual brain wiring itself is more sophisticated. Like it's networks of activity that, that run across the hemispheres. So it's not just two or three regions firing at once or all regions firing at once. It's like there are five regions over here that fire. And for this different task, we have six regions over here that work together. And then we have these four here. So it comes out of this close work that the person does. So they're, they're not even just working closely with another person, whatever it is that they're doing, they work with it in a close, sophisticated way uh, where everything has the capacity to be connected and, and it's facilitating those connections. So this person is very multifaceted way of thinking. I also found it was much more common among people. And when it did appear among Americans with those with an international background, I don't mean international, like they just lived in one country and then magically moved, you know, to another country. It was like an actual, you know, they have experiences in multiple places. They have this international outlet. One ESTJ, great example, um, technically American, but really spent bulk of his childhood in rural Africa and then coming back to the United States and going back to Africa and then coming back to the U.S. and back to Africa and, and what, what a cultural contrast that creates. And really was this like funny, sophisticated, a little bit self-deprecating, curious, 
but not so. I mean, yes, he's traveling, but it really was about the appreciating people. And, and this was actually a, an ESTJ that I got a fair amount in the study because this is the, the ESTJ that would be the most interested in something like brain imaging and what does it have to say about individual differences. Interesting. This is fascinating because it shows that ESTJs can be empaths too. And so that's amazing. And I love that contribution. And so Dario, I believe that you mentioned how brain scans have a validity of two years and that your subtype can actually change over time. Yeah. So it's an interesting question. There's uh, you know, it's, it's several dozen people in the database who have done the brain imaging more than once, whether that was a few months or, uh, you know, like a year or two or more apart from each other. And is an interesting question, like how reliable is this? Is this something permanent? Is it really a subtype? Is that the right word to use? Or is this more like where you are developmentally right now? Um, the research out there, not mine, but other people's, uh, say that brain wiring is reliable or stable statistically for about two years, uh, which, you know, in the, in the whole range of options, a person might retain very similar brain wiring for many, many years, or in theory, because of an accident that causes damage to the brain or something, it, it might change sooner than that. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's sort of cool that on the one hand, we're acknowledging that there is something special about us developmentally that doesn't just change from one, you know, I walk from the kitchen into the dining room and suddenly my personality subtype is different. But on the other hand, I have a capacity to change or to at least shift my subtype. Um, in that, that's what the science says, as best I can tell. My own personal biased feeling is that most likely the subtype is a little bit like a gravitational well, that barring some big changes, we're, we're going to gravitate to one particular subtype back and forth in our lives. So when I was growing up, when I was little, I was very much drawn, I mean, all the stories from the family and so on, to the creative subtype. Then as I became a teenager and and in going through adolescence and through college, especially the first three years or so, four years, that I got a lot of family pressure and cultural and institutional pressure to become the normalizing INTJ, the opposite, basically quadrant from mine, that I was going to work like my dad and other people and my, my uncle and cousins and so on of theirs in a large aerospace company I was going to be an engineer and I was going to be bringing home a big salary and buy a home and provide for my children and uh, live the life, you know, that's like a 1950s kind of life in a large organization. And I received that pressure. And then in my early 20s, I really began to feel something is wrong with that. And it took a while for me to really migrate back to where I was as a kid to really... I, I mean, and that was before I started the brain imaging. So by my mid thirties, I think I was already back there. Um, but it, I think people can be distracted from what they're really drawn to. And I think that this is a really sort of neat little like 
process to take people through and searching for best fit type. So there, now there's all these 64 descriptions. And I had somebody, a colleague come to me and he hadn't quite settled on his type yet. And he's like, I don't know if I'm INFP, ISFP or INFJ. And he had sort of reasons to identify with each of those types. And I said, well, let's take a look at the subtypes. And he, he in fact, he, has, he owns brain imaging equipment, but we did brain imaging and we got a particular result. Um, and he said, but let, let's just go ahead and read these subtypes. And he read the harmonizing version of each of them and he could relate to harmonizing in each. He's like harmonizing INFJ, sure. Harmonizing INFP, yes. Uh, which is it, harmonizing ISFP is almost the stereotype of, uh, of INFP, even though it's a very varied type in practice. Uh, and then harmonizing ISFP as well. And he's like, okay, well, that doesn't help that much. And I'm like, well, read the other subtypes for each type. And he read through the other subtypes of INFP and INFJ. And he's like, no, I'm never these other ones. Like I can relate to harmonizing INFP, but not to the other versions of INFP. But when he read ISFP, all four subtypes, he's like, I'm some of this all of like some of these all of the time. Uh, or all of these some of the time. And he's like, yeah, sometimes I am in this dominant role. And so that really helped him understand why is it that he related to these other IF types. And at the same time, be able to settle on ISFP by seeing, yeah, I do flex to these other ones. So I want people to see that it's not like they're not really boxes in the sense of subtypes. I just say subtypes because it's very easy word for people to understand. Uh, I think that a really great word is variant. I think we've probably had enough of the word variant in our vocabulary uh, worldwide in the last couple of years. But that's what it is. Like every type has a set of themes and each one is is a variation on those themes. And And we can sort of say like, yeah, there are times when I can be normalizing INTJ or dominant INTJ or harmonizing. Um, in fact, I sort of know what that feels like. Like the dominant INTJ can be a little bit jerky. And uh, there, there's, a, you know, a French word for that. Um, and, and the normalizing one can be a little bit boring. And harmonizing can be a little bit neurotic. And I, I like the, the creative one. So it's like, yeah, it's a gravitational well. It's a home base. And yet I can relate to the others. And, um, and if you were to show me creative INFJ or creative INTP, I'm like, oh, yeah. So like I look at creative INTP. I'm like that. Like I can relate to that. But then I look at the other INTPs and I'm like, eh, no. No, it's not me. Yeah, that's a really great story. So it's like you can also figure out your best fit type by reading all the subtypes of a type. And that can also help you narrow down on your type, which is fantastic. We always need better ways to narrow down on type too. And ISFPs oftentimes are confused between those three types, like ISFP, INFP, and INFJ. So if they read your subtypes, they may be able to narrow that down more quickly. So yeah, you're doing good into the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I aim to, yes. Yeah. And so that's quite fascinating, like that play of nurture and nature and type. And that concept of gravitational well is, is very amazing too. I really do think people can relate to it because a lot of people do tend to have a home base. Mm. And so 
sometimes they try out the other subtypes like hats, but there's always one that they might prefer a little bit more than the others. Mm -hmm. um, and so wonderful work on the subtypes. And I think that it offers so much color to type. So we're always looking for ways to make type more fluid, to make type more expansive, to make type more inclusive of all the different variants. Mm -hmm. And so your work really adds spades, it adds volumes to that. So thanks for showing us the nuanced ways in which they can all appear because that stops a lot of the arguments happening in type where they're nitpicking each other on little details when they're really just describing the different kinds of subtypes. Before we end off this interview, I thought maybe it would be really cool to summarize some of the neuroscience that you've done on the functions and how they sometimes appear in brain patterns. I can do that quickly and you can correct me if I'm wrong in any way. <laughs> so with the intuitive functions, they seem to use the whole brain. But with extroverted intuition, there is a Christmas tree pattern where it quickly lights up different parts of the brain and in a very holistic manner. So it's a quick lighting up. It's kind of like popcorn-y. <laughs> Whereas for introverted intuition, it's also a whole brain pattern, but it's more of a Zen state and it activates the whole brain almost all at once. And then there is the sensing functions. I believe that you talk about extroverted sensing, like a tennis hop pattern, where it's able to just kind of like a heart monitor, like it just can show beats and then show beats. Mm -hmm. It has this reflex or a, I don't know how to explain it. Do you, do you remember the, 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 the tennis hop explanation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so with the tennis hop, um, if you've watched a tennis player, after they they, re, they return the ball, you know, back to their opponent, they're not just standing still on the court. That they're maintaining they're, they're some level of momentum. They're not using a lot of energy, but at the very least, they're like bouncing a little bit back and forth on their feet in order to maintain both the momentum and the the opportunity to go left, to go right, to go forward, to go back. And I really see that as a magic with extroverted sensing they're that they're not spending a lot of energy but they are ready to react and when they do they're ready to go in any direction that's beautifully explained dario and then that also brings us to introverted sensing so si shows up in the brain in a very specialized way and so it's the si users that actually have the most varied brains because they all specialize in different areas they have really fine circuitry on a certain part of the brain and it's like very specialized in the specific areas that they choose to go into. Let me know if I butcher any of your explanations wildly too. <laughs> yeah, I, I would just, I would add for introverted sensing that uh, and, and introverted intuiting, you know, there's this whole brain activity for both of them. And for, as you described for introverted intuiting, for introverted sensing, when I used to do an activity to ask people to recall a childhood memory in detail. So they close their eyes and they sit there and they recall that memory um, that they actually go into the Zen like state of the whole brain being involved as if they're there again, experiencing it. And they allow every part of the brain to participate in the recall of the memory. It's not just like, Oh, we're going to get this out of the drawer and look at it. Um, and, and for folks who are wondering, 
Well, Dario, you've shown how within each type, there are these different subtypes with brain wiring. How then can you look at the functions and say like, oh, for intuiting types, it's like using the whole brain and so on. I, I want to say two things. One is that, of course, it's statistical. So that when you look at brain wiring for ENFPs, they're far more likely to have starburst pattern in some way than say ENFJ, which is a dominant feeling type, much less chance. The other is that brain wiring is only one way to look at the brain activity. Another way is to just look at what is the, the actual, not the potentials or the social network, but what is the activity at this moment in time? Like you could have a social network of 20 people and they're all very quiet one day. And then another day they're like split off into groups and they're blah, 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 blah within each group. And then another day they're all like talking all at once, like a chorus. And so what activates that chorus and what activates that chorus depends a lot upon the person's preferred function uh, to get all of those regions to work together. And then what does it look like, like you described with introverted versus extroverted intuiting, the, the extroverted intuiting chorus is more like popcorn or Christmas lights flashing. And the introverted intuiting chorus is more like, you know, like a, a gently soaring aria or a quiet Zen meditation. And, and similarly for most of the other functions, it's like we're talking about what gets them to work all together or whatever it is. That's beautiful. When you explain it, it's just wondrous. It just makes my brain light up with dopamine mm -hmm. and oxygen. And so that brings us to the feeling functions. Mm -hmm. So introverted feeling listens with its whole brain. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I've been astonished to watch it. I mean, I, I remember the entire scene where everyone was sitting, who was there as this INFP purely sitting and listening in a couple of points, asking some questions uh, on a topic that he considered very controversial from a person giving a point of view he completely disagreed with. But as he said, we've never had this discussion before. So I'm going to be like completely open and listening. And his brain was in the state of synchronicity and flow for almost 10 minutes to be able to listen so thoroughly. And that's why I think it's sort of funny. Extroverted intuiting folks have a different strength, but the extroverted intuiting, I mean, extroverted feeling folks and the extroverted feeling folks are like, oh yeah, I listen. And I'm like, well, you like communicating, but that's not the same as the power listening that the FI folks do. And that's just like, when I've seen it, sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes it's really funny. Uh, I had an ESFP, we're sitting there watching and just repeatedly different other students in the lab when he would listen to them or not. Females, he listened to with his whole brain. Males, never. And he's after the result, he's like, oh, that explains it. Because he, he said, you know, he's like, I mean, this is what he sees. He's like, gals tell me all the time, uh, you know, I'm a great listener and and then my brothers in the fraternity they're like you're a terrible listener and they're both correct it's just who is he listening to um and and this really need to see and then of course with esfp this is an auxiliary function so it's only listening it, it's power listening some of the time to some people 
And whereas INFP or ISFP, and then even then there's a type difference. So ISFP does holistic listening and then takes action, including standing up and moving and doing something and then stops again and goes into this holistic listening mode and then gets up and moves and does something again. Whereas INFP just sits there and listens. And, and it's just so cool to see like even those little type differences is the auxiliary function sensing or intuiting. Every time I hear you, I'm like, wow. And so that brings us to extroverted feeling. Mm. And so I actually am not that clear on how that shows up in brain scans. I, I found it a little bit of a challenge at first to elicit this flow from the dominant feeling types, the extroverted feeling types. Um, but there was a moment that just told volumes. So there was an activity in in the lab where the the student would listen to uh, a newspaper article where somebody had done something unethical and caused the death of somebody else. And then I would ask them afterwards, like, how do you feel about this? And use two or three words to describe how you feel and so on. But And the point was, you know, to get them to locate some emotion, some word that captures it. So there was a student and it was her turn and, and she's wearing the cap and she has ENFJ preferences and she listens to the article and she starts giving her answer. And I'm like, could you do in one or two or three words? And she's like, no, she's like, that would be too easy. She's like this, this, this really, this article gets at something that is really in her mind, a very big picture about human karma and human interactions and she gets into describing her philosophy about how people should take responsibility in interacting with each other. And that got her into this telltale state of flow. And I thought that was so cool and so like classically ENFJ that it's like the ENFJ on the moral high ground is where they find their flow. Yeah, there's this passion that's cool and so introverted thinking how does that show up so in in introverted thinking it was really more about so the, there's different regions of the brain that support logical reasoning of different kinds deductive reasoning induction inference uh, working with multiple variables naming and defining things you know it, it's never of course just one region that does all of that work, but these regions greatly aid to that. Um, the abstract use of language and so on. Uh, one thing I found really cool that stood out with the, the TI folks, the introverted thinking folks, is that one, when they would be engaged in the debate activity, which I don't do with people now, but, but in the lab we did this, um, that they actually use the parts of the brain involved in reasoning Whereas many people, if you engage them in debate, they don't. They just use the prefrontal executive regions to give good enough sort of confabulated answers. You know, if I were to ask you, Joyce, why are you wearing a pink sweater today? You could probably make up a reason for why you're wearing a pink sweater. Of course, you're not actually wearing a pink sweater. But, but you know, no politician has let that get in the way. Of, uh, of making up a reason for a thing. And we do that all the time. The, the, like the just so story, the explanation that we can just, just rolls off the tongue, um, which TE types in particular are pretty good at doing. Um, but the TI types, that, that is not satisfying to them. 
that they actually activate parts of the brain that will demand that extra work for induction, deduction, naming and defining, working with multiple variables. And while everyone has some capacity for that, they will often be engaging multiple regions with those. And maybe not all at once, but it could be in a series or something like that, or it could be preferential based on context, but they have this toolbox that they trust in the brain, they have tools that are based in reasoning. And that to me is, is really nice like that. You know, otherwise, why do we have these reasoning parts of our brain if we don't use them most of the time? Well, the TI folks do. Um, yeah. And and that contrasts with the TE folks who are very empirically driven. Um, I see this time and again, and not just with ESTJ or, or whatnot. Um, there's two things. One is this relying upon sort of left brain data, the words that were spoken, the measurements that were taken, uh, the steps that are laid out, um, what I'm actually seeing in front of me. So there's this reason combined with the left prefrontal cortex, which is about decision making and organizing and goal focus and so on. There's this big trust in, in empirical evidence. And uh, I, I mean, I relate to that very much. Um, I'm not necessarily paying attention to all the concrete details, but I do trust empirical evidence a lot. And the thinking is something that I do that always involves some kind of like measurable, factual, buildable, adjustable, whatever it is, data, uh, actionable. Um, and then another facet of extroverted thinking is to just turn off the lights when you don't need them. And this, I, I mean, this was really classic. So an ENTJ that I know came and we did a brain imaging session and being an ENTJ, of course, he's a little bit overdrive. Uh, he's a little bit in overdrive and he hadn't slept in 36 hours and he had just flown in from China. And uh, as part of like, and before that he was in uh, you know, Eastern Europe um, all part of like a continuous tour and he was exhausted and he basically like had no brain activity. He was functioning completely on the surface, but like there was, you know, it's like, it's like you turn on the radio and there should be music. There's music coming out, but the volume knob is set to zero. So like what's going on. So he and I agreed that we would do a follow-up in like a month. And when he had gotten rest and like had, there was a good opportunity and we did. And he still showed the classic ENTJ style. Like, yes, he had more brain activity and it was more normal. But the fact is, it's not efficient to have all the parts of your brain on when you only need two or three for a given task. And I can relate to that. I mean, that's why one reason why, you know, INFJs, for example, ENFJs, they're like all the time, like, oh, I couldn't sleep. My mind was thinking about this problem. Yeah, because you were using some introverted thinking that was like actually using your brain uh, in addition to the other preferred functions. INTJ and ENTJ are like, oh, it's time to turn off the television in a way. Oh, like we don't need the lights. I'm not cooking anything in the kitchen. Just turn off the lights. And so there's, there's this like natural efficiency in the brain that happens. And, and that's great if you need to do leadership and decision-making all day long because the brain uses so much energy, like one quarter of the body's energy goes towards powering our brains, that you preserve 
the energy by only the, the downside of course is that maybe there are times when you want to turn on those lights and you're going to resist because you're not in the habit of it and so getting it is really sort of funny but most people think oh entjs are intuiting type so they appreciate all of the facets of intuition like you know the abstract jokes and humor and the metaphor and all this stuff and they do they get that but trying to get an ENTJ to engage in open-ended brainstorming is like pulling teeth. Unless they see the purpose of it, like we're connected to a clear goal, they're not going to do it. And that part of their brain will not turn on. And that's, or the parts of their brain to do that will not turn on. Um, they're not ENTPs. And that's, uh, th those are some examples with, with extrovert. And, and really I could give several different examples for each function, but I think I'll leave that for people to discover. Yeah. And so thank you so much, Jerry and Artie, for coming out and explaining neuroscience in the most eloquent way a person can explain it. And Dario and Artie has some great books. A few titles are The Magic Diamond and also The Neuroscience of Personality. I, I would want to add that for those 64 type descriptions, those are not in a printable book format yet, but they are available online. Uh, in two different formats. One of them is like the slides that you showed. Uh, so it's basically getting an ebook. It's 200 slides that give a background on and all of that. And then there's another one that's usable as handouts, which is a little bit prettier than slides. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. And I'll have that linked below. And so thank you so much. I really appreciate all of the knowledge nuggets you've given our audience, connecting it back to hormones, connecting it back to brain science, connecting it back to the anecdotes from all of this wondrous wisdom that you've gained throughout going through real people who actually are the types that they are and being able to extract these stories to be able to relate to people so that they're able to understand the functions and the subtypes in a more visceral, relatable way. And so you really offer that. And so I'm glad that you're always expanding yourself and you're learning and you're always adding more to your research. And something that people may not know about you is that you're a very spiritual guy. And so not only do you do neuroscience, but you also have this really deep side of you. So you have courses with Personality Hacker, I believe, Young on Yoga. Mm -hmm. And so you have all of these different holistic ways to enhance people's well-beings, whether it be to understand their form of neurodiversity or how they could have practices like yoga or other things to enhance their mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Mm -hmm. And so you are all around holistically bettering people. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's an honor to be able to reach so many people as well. And uh, I feel very lucky in that regard to also have all of these tools available over the years and great teachers and, um, you know, also such a, like a deep interest in type, you know, that continues in the general population that it speaks to people in a way that they're hungry for. And, and I believe there, there's a lot more, you know, there's type in a sort of a light sense. And then there's type in the Jungian sense about development and the transcendent function and the reconciliation of opposites and alchemy and all of that, the shadow. And that's, it's all part of the journey.
and it's um it, it, the more I can help people out on that journey, the the better. It's, uh, it's been very rewarding for me. I really do think you're able to help a lot of people. And so you leave ripples in the ocean where people like just keep benefiting because the ripple gets larger and larger as it goes out. And so thanks everyone for watching. I'll see you all in the next episode. Thank uh, you. Thank mm -hmm. you.